Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week on Wealth Track, surging index funds, fewer publicly traded stocks, computer dominated trading. What do these dramatic market changes mean for investors? Find out next on Consuelo Mac Wealth Track. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. This is not your grandmother's or mother's market, and if you were a baby boomer as I am, it's not even the market of your youth. The very structure of the stock market has changed in some fundamental ways. Among the major differences, the number of publicly traded stocks has shrunk dramatically in the U.S. As you can see from this chart, 20 years ago, there were nearly 9,000 publicly traded companies on U.S. stock exchanges. That number has declined more than 40 percent to just over 5,000 today. And where those stocks are trading has changed. A decade ago, the New York Stock Exchange, with its specialists overseeing orders for each stock, accounted for 80 percent of the trading of New York Stock Exchange-listed companies. Transactions for all to see. Now only 20% of the trades occur in the big board. The vast majority are dispersed electronically among multiple trading platforms out of direct human control and the public eye. Where are new companies getting the financing to develop and grow? Largely from private investors through private equity firms. There are now more than 4,000 PE firms globally, up from a mere 100 a couple of decades ago. 95% of them are in the U.S., they are overseeing an estimated $2.5 trillion worth of assets. The supply of stocks is shrinking, but the number of indexes is exploding. As this chart illustrates, there are now more benchmark indexes than there are stocks, over 5,000 of them. Many of them are being created to meet the swelling demand for passive index investments, especially exchange-traded funds or ETFs. The number of ETFs has also soared in recent years, to 2,000 in the U.S. with about $3 trillion in assets. Four of the five most actively traded securities last year were ETFs. The one exception, Bank of America. So what do all of these changes mean for investors? Joining us are two financial thought leaders, one from Wall Street and one covering it. Jason Trendert is co-founder, managing partner, and chief investment strategist at Strategus Research Partners, an independent investment strategy and macroeconomic research firm, followed by institutional investors because of its original and proprietary analysis of the markets, economy, and fiscal and monetary policies. Jason Zweig is a highly respected financial journalist who writes the Intelligent Investor column for the Wall Street Journal, named after Benjamin Graham's classic, The Intelligent Investor. Zweig is the editor of the revised latest edition. He is also the author of several books, including Your Money in Your Brain and the satirical, funny, and oh-so-sobering look at Wall Street, The Devil's Financial Dictionary. Our discussion began with why so few companies are going public. I think there's really, there's really two reasons. The first is uh, Sarbanes-Oxley after uh, the financial crisis in 99-2000, after the bubble. It 
that made the cost of being a public company significantly higher. Um, simultaneously, you had this growth in the private equity business, and, and it's, it's estimated there were about 100 private equity firms in the year 2000. There are about 4,000 right now. Wow. So the, really, the, the, the need to go public is just not there. There are a lot of other sources of capital that companies can tap into. Right. How big a deal is it, Jason, that, uh, that we, we have this shrinking universe of publicly traded companies? I think it affects the market on two levels. One it almost compels institutional investors like pension funds and university endowments and the like to invest ever more in private equity, which of course drives up prices and ultimately drives down future returns. So we've already seen a lot of the historic advantage of private equity as an asset class shrinking. And I would expect that all of these people are chasing performance they probably won't catch. The second uh, reason I think it matters is somewhat less significant. I think for fund managers who invest in very small stocks, uh, their job is probably getting harder than ever. Because, because their universe is really shrinking, right? Because that's, that's where the, the PE you know, firms the, invest. The, we had seven, roughly 7,500 companies 20 years ago. Now we've got roughly half that number. So you've got larger and larger amounts of money chasing fewer and fewer companies. It becomes harder and harder to compete in that environment. So the other thing that troubles me, though, is what you're saying, is that private equity is for high net worth individuals or it's endowments and pension funds and everything else. So that means that, that you know, I, as an individual investor, I'm losing out as far as my ability to invest in young companies. That's my editorial, I don't usually do that, but, um, but Jace, you wrote a piece uh, recently that we actually put on our website, wealthtrack.com, saying that there's actually, uh, the, it's almost like private equity is doing a favor to individual investors. So explain that by investing in these yeah, I mean, small it, it, companies. Individual investors will have some, uh, will probably have some exposure to those companies through their own pension plans or for their own endowments. But by the same token, in some ways, private equity is saving uh, retail investors or individual investors from themselves because a lot of the most exciting and, and the most speculative uh, companies are right. not public companies right now. So if you think of an Uber, for instance, or an Airbnb or a Spotify, a lot of those companies at this part of, a, you know, after an eight-year bull market, people would be bidding those things up to, um, you know, high heaven. And, and right now that's really not happening. Uh, that's where the risk is probably more on the private equity side than it normally would be. Uh, on the individual investor side. So it's also part of the reason why I think the euphoria um, that's normally associated with a bull market doesn't seem to be as apparent as it normally is. So certainly if you remember 99 or 2000, mm -hmm. there's, there's it's really no comparison. And let me just finish up on the, on the private equity part of this, because for most of our audience, it doesn't really matter to them. I mean, it's interesting. But, but you said, uh, Jason, that you thought that it, it was, it's, they were really expensive, and you two agree on that, that private equity, uh, is it in a bubble? Is it just they're paying a lot of money for you know if you companies. if you spend time in the San Francisco area or any other part of the country where there's a heavy concentration of venture capital or private equity partners uh, you will be almost overwhelmed by how much money is sloshing around right and uh, 
you know, these companies are all valued as if they all are going to dominate the market. Just like dot-com was the yes. dot-com bubble. And right. it's, it's pretty much the same mental model, which is um, the in, back in 1999, everybody knew, and nobody was wrong, everybody knew that the internet was going to be the next great thing. And it was, it is. But problem is 90% of the companies involved in it don't exist anymore. <laughs> so if, if you were fortunate enough to buy Amazon back then, and only Amazon, you did pretty well. But if you bought um, you know, pets.com, you lost 95, 98% of your money. Same thing is probably gonna happen again, but now it's gonna happen to the smart money not the so-called dumb money. Is this a problem if private equity, in fact, if we see a lot of private equity firms going out of business or you know, if, if things don't work out with these long-term, longer-term bets, does that cause a problem in the financial system? Eventually, it'll cause a problem, in my opinion, for state, particularly for state pension plans. Okay. I think is one of the places where there's probably the most risk because part of what allows a lot of state pension plans to have what I believe, an uh, editorial comment, are, are uh, actuarial expectations that are much too high, right. are much too high um, allocations to alternative investments, particularly private equity. And again, it's worked well. David Swenson at Yale was the first yes. to really popularize this, but it worked very well for Yale because he was the first person to do it. He noticed that there was a, a risk, uh, you know, more of a premium, a public company pre premium over private companies, and he exploited it. Now, I think it's quite the opposite. I think there's a private company premium uh, over public equities. The next phenomenon that we've been covering a lot on Wealthtruck is the explosion in ETFs. And it's, what's so interesting is here you have on the one hand, you have stocks that are shrinking, the publicly traded stocks. And on the other hand, you have these ETFs, which are primarily made up of stocks that are booming. I mean, you know, when do those two facts collide? Jason. Well, that's an interesting question. I guess what I would say is that uh, there's an underappreciated factor that's been driving this. Uh, much of the money that has been going into ETFs is not, it's not strictly speaking new money. It's being shifted from stock mutual funds mm -hmm. into stock ETFs. And that migration has been driven by, largely by financial advisors who charge an annual management fee to their clients. Now, if I'm charging you 1% a year to manage your money, and I'm putting your money in mutual funds that cost 1%, uh, you're paying me effectively 2% a year. Right. But, and you're probably gonna start to ask me why I'm not cutting my own fee. But if I move that money out of a 1% mutual fund into an ETF that charges a fifth or a tenth as much, the pressure comes off my fee. And I happen to believe that's one of the big motivations that has been pushing that huge migration of money. Uh, that's not a bad thing, by the mm -hmm. way, for the client, but I think it's important to realize that there's an underlying economic force here that's gonna keep driving that money for probably for years to come. And the economic force being the financial interests of the financial yes, advisor. Absolutely. But again, 
too, you know, too few, too, too, what, what is it? Too much money chasing too few goods. Mm -hmm. So in this case, when there are too few goods, which are fewer and fewer stocks, and you have, I think um, there are now something like 5,000 indexes, which is more almost indexes than there are more stocks. indexes mm -hmm. than, than there are stocks. It strikes me that that's got to eventually be a problem that has not been tested yet because we've been in an eight-year bull market. Yeah, I, I personally, I believe this is, it lies at the very core of the active versus passive debate, mm -hmm. right? So people are moving money from, as Jason said, from actively managed uh, mutual funds to passively managed uh, ETFs. And there's nothing wrong with that per se, except that uh, if it gets out of hand, which I think it is, people are going to be spending more and more, not realizing they're going to be paying higher and higher prices for the constituents of those indices. And I think that's particularly true for the S&P 500. Right, which is the most popular, the most of, popular all of the ETFs. Yeah. Um, stock index. And particularly when you look at stocks like what we call the FANG stocks, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, uh, because they're market cap weighted, they get bid up even more. So more expensive companies tend to get more expensive uh, the more money that flows into these passively managed funds. And that, the good news is that I, I do think that gives a, um, an opportunity for active management to make a comeback. Mm -hmm. uh, but for now, those stocks will get more expensive. In fact, you have written a research piece saying that you think that passive has peaked, which uh, it, you just explained a little bit about why. But, but w what, are, what are your major arguments? Well, it's partly because of the, the um, existence of ETFs, the growth of the ETFs. But I think it's also largely because of the monetary policy that we've had in the United States which uh, has largely um, suppressed the volatility of both interest rates, the economy, inflation. And uh, you've also really not had a real business cycle. About a third of the companies in the Russell 2000 have failed to make a profit in the last 12 months. Right. Uh, that only happens in recessions. It doesn't happen in the eighth year of an expansion. The reason why it's happening is because interest rates are quite low. And so if you're, if you're tasked with buying good companies and selling bad companies, uh, your job has become very, very difficult in a period of excessively low interest rates. As interest rates normalize, as they go up, and the Fed starts to normalize interest rates, in my opinion, the volatility of the markets will be higher, and the value of active managers should, should improve. Uh, the last several years, though, have not been kind to active versus passive. No, it, the last eight years, right. essentially. And actually, there's a SPIVA report, which we've reported on, on WealthTrack, uh, that shows that for the last 15 years, just about like 90% or something of active managers have underperformed uh, their benchmarks and in just about every asset class you can look at. So your response to this passive is peaked. I think it's a lot closer to peaking than it was a few years ago, certainly. I, my hunch is we still have quite a ways to go before passive peaks. I, I don't know where it will top out, but I think there's I think there's still a, a lot of room in front for passive management to grow. Uh, I also I might push back slightly, Jace, right. on your point, and just uh, I think because I've spent a lot of time looking for this, and I I have a hard time sort of proving the case that money flows into passive funds in isolation have contributed to overvaluation in the market. I mean, if, for example, you compare the S&P 500 to the Wilshire 5000, a much broader index, 
Yes, the S&P is a very large share of it, but you don't really see the valuation gap between those two getting that much wider than it historically has been, even though there have been much greater inflows into the S&P 500 index funds than total stock market index funds. So intuitively, I think everybody has the same sense that when millions of investors are all doing the same thing, it has to have a significant effect. But it's, it's really hard to come up with kind of conclusive evidence that we're there, that passive has distorted the marketplace in a way that is dangerous. You can see it in little areas, like we saw it in real estate investment trusts a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. We saw it in like low volatility stocks and maybe high dividend stocks. But for the market as a whole, I'm not totally sure we're there yet. I, I would tend to agree. I think when you're really going to see it is during the next recession in times of economic right. stress, in my, as you always do. Right? Mm-hmm. And Warren Buffett says you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes right. out. Right now, the economy, uh, the, the economic growth is actually pretty good and uh, volatility is quite low. But our expectation is that with the new administration, if it gets some of its, its policies through, they're quite reflationary and will change the volatility of economic growth moving forward. There's another theory that, that Jason, that, that you have, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was really interesting, mm-hmm. you've written uh, a column about it as well, is that one of the reasons that you don't seem to be as concerned about mm-hmm. the rising dominance of mm-hmm. ETFs is um, that you wrote a column called The Market is Really Different This Time, and that you say that we are in a homeostatic market. So explain Mm -hmm. what's going on in the market. Yeah, so just as uh, the thermostat in your house or maybe in your car will adjust the heating system to stay within a band around the temperature you're choosing to set, uh, so many investors are now automatically rebalancing or selling some of whatever's gone up and buying some of whatever's gone down. I think at the margin, that's having a moderating impact on the market. And I think it may be a contributing factor to why volatility has been so low, at least until the past few days. And another issue that, that uh, Jace, that you and I had, have talked about before is the fact that, uh, that the exchange, we used to have the New York Stock Exchange, which the vast majority of stocks are traded on, is that now that only 20% of the stocks now actually traded on the New York okay. Stock Exchange. And so the trading is dispersed among all of these other groups and I, you know, call it kind of like the shadow, you know, trading system that maybe aren't so well regulated. They really don't know what each other's doing. It concerns me. We have an annual conference every year for our institutional investors, and we almost always have someone talking about market structure. Right. Uh, Because as you pointed out, uh, 10 years ago, 80% of the market share of trading in New York Stock Exchange listed stocks happened on the New York Stock Exchange. Now it's only 20%. There's over 30 other sources of liquidity or exchanges out there. Um, when you see things like the flash crash, the, one of the things that was disconcerting uh, was how few people knew what the source of the problem right. was. It, in the old days, you could go right to the exchange and you would have a good idea. Uh, now you don't have that idea as, as well. Are you concerned about that, Jason? One of the difficulties, I think, is that uh, the system has become not just hard to understand, but hard to manage. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not clear that the regulators in Washington 
fully understand how the system works. Mm -hmm. I don't want to sound alarmist, but I think there's some legitimate concern about whether it has become too complicated for anybody to manage. So l l let me ask you the two final questions, and J Jason, I'll start with you. Mm -hmm. and, and that is, um, with all of these changes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, is the stock market a good place for individual investors to be putting their life's, you know, retirement uh, investments in? Well, yes, I think so, but it's not a good place to be, jump, like, jumping in with both feet. Mm -hmm. uh, now more than ever, it's important to have a plan and a structure. Uh, you don't want to go out and buy the FANG stocks because they're hot. You don't want to put all your money in Apple, you don't want to put all your money in one market sector or even in one fund, and you also don't want to put it in all at once. Um, what you want to do is you want to have a target for how much you want in, in, the, stock in the stock market, mm -hmm. and you should also have a target time period over which you would get to that level, and above all, you want to keep your costs as low as possible. Jace, I'm going to quote you yep. to yourself. Index investors will be subject to the entirety of the next market decline. Is this a place we want to be? I think you want to be more selective. I agree. You, PEs, uh, valuations of the market, aren't cheap by any standard. Interest rates are historically low by any standard. Right. And so I, I very much agree. This, this, again, presents maybe some opportunities for active managers. I will say too, I, I just I want to get in here the idea of bond funds as well because I think that's one place where the individual investor is probably most exposed. A lot of the surveys suggest that a lot of individual investors view bond funds as a proxy for cash, and it's not. Right. Uh, it's a clearly had there is clear capital at risk there, and I think again if interest rates and inflation move higher as they will at some point in the future you'll start to see um, some of that pain. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, and Jason, I'm gonna ask you for yours first. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, put a little twist on it, Consuelo. I'm, I'm going to, I think I'm gonna recommend not an investment, but a, um, but, uh, a pocket. I think um, all of your viewers or a very large number of them probably have kids, probably a bunch of them have teenage kids. And if you haven't opened a Roth IRA for your children, you really should, because you can take your kids' summer earnings or um, any other wage income that mm -hmm. they have, and you can match it dollar for dollar in a Roth IRA for your kid. There are no tax consequences for you. Um, there's, uh, the money will grow tax-free for your child. Um, it's a great way to set money aside, and it's more or less a risk-free transaction for you as a parent and for your children. And you could do it for grandchildren, too. A absolutely. I, I would say Bank of America. Uh, a stock. A stock. B-A-C, <laughs> I know how old-fashioned. So I think someone described uh, buying stocks as model railroading uh, now. It's, it's become that... <laughs> Um, that uninteresting, but I, I still I still love the game. Uh, it's it's not a game. Uh, it's an it's an activity, uh, but I like Bank of America quite a bit. The, the stock it's interesting. The stock has has doubled in the past year, but it's still it's still trading below book value, 
And I feel very strongly that this administration is going to work very hard to deregulate the financial system, and I think Bank of America will be a big beneficiary of that. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Jace, Jason Trenner and Jason Zweig, thanks for being with us on WealthTrack. Thank you. Thanks. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is consider automating some of your investment decisions. There are numerous places to do so. Automatic deposits to savings or tax-deferred accounts for yourself, your children, and even grandchildren. Setting up a robo-account to automatically invest and rebalance your portfolio. Buying a target date fund to prepare for your retirement. Automatic dividend reinvestment plans, either through a mutual fund, ETF, or DRIP, a dividend reinvestment plan offered by companies for their stocks. Automating your investments takes you and your emotions out of the process and ensures a financial plan for the future. Well, next week, we will turn our attention to socially responsible investing with two leaders in the field, Gabelli Fund's Christina Alfandari and Calvert Fund's John Stroyer. In the extra feature on our website, we will discuss why Zweig and Trenert are monitoring some emerging antitrust issues surrounding the dominant roles played by Vanguard and BlackRock, as well as Google, Facebook, and Amazon. And speaking of social media, please keep your comments coming to us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.